All right. Well, I guess we are live. Uh, welcome to the show. This is episode 72 of Teaching Python. My name is Sean Tiber. I am a coder that teaches. And my name's Kelly Schuster Paredes, and I'm a teacher that codes. Nice. Gosh, well, that feels it, weird. Sorry, that felt really weird. It's been a little bit of time, huh? Yeah, well, there hasn't <laughs> hasn't been as much teaching this summer, which is kind of fun. So, uh, yeah, it's it's been a, a good summer. I feel like I'm getting to catch up on a lot of things that I've deferred during the school year. And I know you've been doing a lot of the same. So we figured, <laughs> why don't we just talk about that as a show and, and catch up with some of the questions that people have uh, for us. And hopefully we'll get some on the live stream also. Uh, in fact, let me tweet out that we are, in fact, now live uh, so that everyone can join in. Um, but yeah, if people have questions, they can they can jump in. We have some uh, queued up. But why don't we start with the wins of the week? And I'll make you go first, Kelly, because we have no guests this week. Oh, cool. Um, oh, my God. Where can we start? Well, I, I'm going to we both got into that AWS scholarship um, opportunity. So that's a win that I'll just take for both of us. But I think the win is actually the fact that I'm still chugging along with both of the, these courses, the JetBrain Academy, which is a killer. And I'm, I, I just want to go back and see what my map is. I still need, <laughs> I still need um, 108 things to learn. <laughs> just a few, just a few, no big deal. It, it is ridiculous. I have started on the project, um, one of five, and it's it's beautiful soup. It, I've done it before, and I think, you know, I'm on bantering in my head about this tutorial. Um, what's it called? Tutorial death or <laughs> um, per, uh, tutorial paralysis? Probably. Yeah. To, well, and. I understand. I've done the beautiful. I've done beautiful soup. I've helped a student, but I've never ever had so much theory. And JetBrains is really going through the theory of things, and as well as this AWS scholarship AI. We took that AI course. I don't know two years ago, and yeah, yeah I, I clicked the buttons, and I was like, oh yeah, I did TensorFlow. Oh yeah, I did these pictures, and I can separate white wine and red wine, and it was great. But I had no understanding of the theory of AI and the back end, you know, servers and clients. And I think I'm getting mixed up between what I learned at JetBrain, but I'm still going along. So that is a huge win for me. And it's been about I don't know, four or five weeks of learning, chugging along every day, an hour on the AWS and at least 30 minutes on the JetBrain. So I'm pretty proud of myself. I got asked the question if I was doing my pie bites and I had to say, no, I can't do any more than what I'm doing on top of working. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bit right. Like it's it's kind of a lot to um, to manage all of these different learning streams. And I think the more that you have, the more fragmented it becomes, at least for me. Like I mm -hmm. am just like when I have too many things going on, too many streams, it really screws me up. Mm -hmm. Well, I think like um, I think this is the AWS machine learning is a great complement to um, web scraping. It's mm -hmm. given me this understanding of, of how the request library works and how it pulls out information. I think it would be a nice complement of how you can do a basic machine learning task, um, either categorized or uncategorized. Listen to me. I know all these words now. Yeah. <laughs> 
with multiple <laughs> syllables and everything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I actually can, I didn't have to write it down in my notes. I remember this, but it's, it's really incredible what your brain can accomplish when you, you when you have this focused learning and this opportunity to, to have like a diffuse time afterwards. So I learned for the morning and then I am full on project management with my kids or working um, on tasks for school. So it's pretty cool. That's awesome. I mean, so just to just to give everyone a little bit more detail. So this is a, an AWS machine learning course on Udacity. So it's a full course with videos and content and quizzes and knowledge checks and and the whole range. And, and this is a like an intro course, really. It's a fundamentals course. Mm -hmm. But um, I think they said they had 50,000 people sign up or apply for the course and got accepted. And then at the end of it, they're awarding, I think, 450 nano degrees. 425 oh, only. Oh, 425. Okay, well. <laughs> and you have I'll... to pass the test. <laughs> right. And, and you're being judged on how well you pass the test, the examples that you give. So there, it's a really competitive scholarship. And, and honestly, I, if I get the scholarship for the nano degree, that would be amazing. But to be honest, I think just finishing the fundamentals course is a really great foundation for a lot of other learning. So. Yeah. I, I mean, being able to actually explain some of these things that we're doing in the, in school, I don't need to go in depth with the theory, but me, by me learning the theory, I'm able to extrapolate my understanding and put it into better metaphors for the kids to understand. So it's kind of nice to get this background after learning for three years, all the stuff that I've yeah. been just copying and pasting and looking up and Googling. So it's nice. Yeah, and I think it's going to serve us well in a couple of areas. One, we can we can teach with it, um, the machine learning part of it. But I think there's also this nice benefit of, of being able to share this idea of how the machine learns and draw parallels and connections with how we learn. And, mm -hmm. and that kind of training your brain, um, it's kind of amazing if you think about it. We learn faster than the machine does. We mm -hmm. learn a lot of this stuff really well, and our brains are really well adapted for this kind of uh, training. And there's things that we can do as, as humans with our mental capacity that the machine just can't. But mm -hmm. it still is a good framework and a good model, a mental model for students to be able to think about how they learn and how they train themselves to get better at things. It's so funny you said that. Uh, there's this, And I'm going to let you have your win of the week and I won't say mm -hmm. anything else after this. But I'm reading um, this book by Jeff Hawkins that Barbara Oakley recommended to us um, like four episodes ago. And he's, he states, you know, there's no real, there's no really I, there's no intelligence in AI because although they're very good at that one task, they can play right. go very well. They can do a car, drive a car nicely. You know, we can spray paint a car perfectly, but there really isn't any intelligence. And the best that we can hope for at this moment is actually make a computer that has the mental capacity of a five-year-old child. But just think about everything that your your child knows at five. Can you imagine? And you having to program in that. So that's right. been been great to to see. Well, there's been some interesting stuff about that too. Um, I'm posting the link to the Amazon book in our live chat here. If anybody wants to go check it out, it's called "A Thousand Brains: A New Theory of Intelligence" by Jeff Hawkins. Um, it is the number one bestseller in neuroscience, and I love how um, Amazon <laughs> has really specific categories. Um, <laughs> But one of the things that came out this week was um, between GitHub and VS Code, they've announced this um, like co-pilot that's supposed to be an AI-driven 
pair programmer with you. So as you're coding, it's suggesting uh, code. And I've seen a lot of different reactions to it online. Everything from I've tried this and it's actually pretty amazing to the machines will never replace us. <laughs> and that's funny. It's it's interesting because it depends on what you need. Like based on on what it can do right now, maybe it's a pretty good um, suggestion for boilerplate code or things that are like pretty standard. But it can't really be as creative as a human because it's not as flexible. It's not as elastic as a human is in terms of its uh, mental capacity. But this is starting to really touch a lot of different places, including coding. Yeah. Well, if you ever, if you get into this book and I honestly, we could have a whole podcast about this book and I'm only halfway through because it's one of these books that I have to read and go back and read um, because it's just so, it's so fun. I don't know my, I, I just really get into this and Barbara was right when it's a great book, but um, he talks about these mental models. And when we, when we want to code a computer to do something with a if else statement or, you know, have a stapler. If you press the top part of the staple and push it down, um, a staple will come out. Well, when we, in our brains, we don't go through this list of press from the top, a top equals this. Um, here's the rotation. This is the place that a, that a stapler is in. We actually see these mental models. We see this picture of a stapler in our mind and the idea of one day of getting a computer up to that point where it sees that mental model and then you don't have to define up rotation. What's a staple? What's a stapler? How do you press? How hard do you press? And so it's, it's fun. And all these things are coming together. So, okay. That was a really long win of the week. So it, I haven't talked to an adult. <laughs> <laughs> don't know what you're talking about. I, I totally, totally get that. Uh <laughs> Well, so it's here. So wins of the week. I mean, honestly, the the win is a lot of things coming together. That's really nice. Um, to be honest, it's great that I have this time to be able to work on different projects. And I'm, I'm doing a lot of different things right now, focusing on a lot of um, technical and non-technical projects, although they're all kind of technical in some way. Um, so, you know, for example, I finished my, my iPad uh, project last week. And, or uh, the week before. And so I was able to spend last week focusing on things like my fast API project that I've been doing. So it's a, an API with data behind it. And I'm working on how to web scrape data and, and put it into my database and be able to make that available and automate it and update it and all of these cool things that are, are I guess, not necessarily, um, you know, it, conceptually hard. But when you get into all the details and the complexity of it, it becomes really interesting and really fascinating. And, and having the space and the time to be able to really focus on this and learn it is, is very valuable. I feel like my programming skills are getting stronger and I'm thinking about how I structure my code. I'm refactoring my code a lot of the time to make it more readable. Um, you know, sorry, Al Swigert, but I, I did use classes and object inheritance to be able to simplify <laughs> some of my code and refactor it. It made me feel really good that I'm like, okay, I get this and it works. And um, you know, a lot of this stuff has been just, just great to, to be able to focus on. And that, that's been my win this week is, is just that focus time and being able to figure things out and, and accomplish stuff. And, um, I, as I'm planning ahead, it's kind of hard to believe that we're already halfway through the summer here. <laughs> I know Kelly's about to cry. Um, so like I'm four I'm, weeks. <laughs> I know. And I'm, I'm just trying to be really diligent and really focused about what am I going to use my four weeks for? And that, that kind of, um, I guess clarity 
and prioritization is really helping me because it's making me think about what do I really want to do this summer? What's really important to me? And it's helping me deprioritize a lot of things that, that are just not important anymore. Yeah, well, it's so. very exciting that you're done with your work from school. I'm still chugging along on mine. And it's kind of nice, though, because I've I've reinforced what I already knew, that I really like working with datas, and I really like sitting in front of a computer. And I don't know what, what it is about generating emails and having these tasks that are that are sequential that I need to do. And I guess that's why coding became so natural for me. Um, because that ability to just go down through a list and after you've thought through the problem and check it off as you go, you find another problem, you go back up to the list. And I'm, I'm working on my, uh, my project for the school and it's been, it's been, it's been challenging, (laughs) but it's been so much, but I don't, we're, we're weird. I think we like these challenging things. Like like same, same appeal, but different brains. Right. So So, you know, I've been focusing a lot on tasks lately also, and, and my tasks has been, have been coding tasks. So I'm using this um, really cool server called Celery, mm. which you can schedule um, bits of code to run and run asynchronously. So what I'm doing is, let's say I, I web scrape a bunch of data and I need to add all these individual um, objects to our database. I can create a task for each one and put it in a worker queue. And then this worker goes and just does like one task at a time. And it processes through it in such a way that I'm not sitting there waiting for a Python script to take five minutes or 10 minutes to run and execute. And if it breaks in the middle, then, you know, where do I resume it and everything? It breaks it down into these really small tasks. And then when they're all completed, I can, you know, then summarize it and send out an email to say, like, here's the results of all the the work that you did. So this sort of like, idea is I don't, I don't know what it is it's just i think it appeals to me in the same way it appeals to you like i like that idea of thinking about how to sequence it how to process through it how to figure it out how to solve the problem and solve it in a really robust and scalable way right yeah. it's not just to be able to solve it once but how do i make it so that you know while i'm asleep it can run and work pretty well and if it doesn't work pretty well then it'll like fail gracefully instead of like just crashing out very cool Very cool. Uh, We have to have that for me just to chug through my to-do list. (laughs) Maybe, maybe you can write some scripts. Like a little worker script. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I can get rid of all my post-its this year. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know if we're getting rid of the plexiglass or whatever, but um, maybe we can just keep the plexiglass hanging. (laughs) If you want it, we can keep it. I'm I'm flexible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it kind of leads into, um, into uh, our first question, which is actually from, um, from Eric Mathis. So he wrote to us and said, um, Sean, do you miss working outside the school system? And Kelly, do you want to work as a programmer outside the school system? That was a tension I felt every time I taught a programming class with no clear answer. So Kelly, here, here's the question to you. Do you want to work as a programmer outside the school system? So I kept thinking about this and I was, I joked around on the tweet that I hope my boss isn't listening. Um, I really liked, I'll back up. I, I think a year and a half ago, I would never have thought that I would ever want to be a, a developer or sit at home and, and work and not have this constant get up at seven, run to, run to the work, you know, or get up at four 30, go to the gym, then, you know, run to the work, come back, do this, do that. But after COVID, sitting at home and realizing that I could do a lot and make a difference 
in people's lives from my home. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. I probably could do this. Um, I still would like to have some connection with students. I would love to be, you know, like the Eric Mathis and the Nick Tolovey of the world, you know, here's, here I'm a developer, but I'm still making a difference in a student's life or a kid's life. Um, it would be really cool. I would not mind if I could actually hack away at um, machine learning and make some cool products. I've got some ideas of some wishful things that would help, you know, like might make a difference. Would I be ever to do a developer? I don't know. I'm not on that one-year plan. I hear about the people who started to learn Python and are a developer in a year. It's not me. <laughs> so maybe when I retire, uh, I can be a developer. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interesting because, um, you know, for me, I never stopped working outside of the school system. So in addition to teaching, I've also continued to do digital marketing work, consulting work. I have clients on the side. And what I've found is that they complement each other very nicely. This programming work and the teaching work that I'm doing, the learning that I do in order to teach and very valuable to me and my uh, third person. Like it's been really great to be able to spend time learning things that I would have never otherwise learned and stimulate my, my, you know, my knowledge growth through teaching and then use that in other areas. So I've written a lot of, web services for clients. I've written automated processes, webhook catchers, like all of these things that are relatively simple, but most people in the digital marketing space and that are working on this automation area in, in marketing, they're either developers and they're creating products and services to be able to sell to people like me or their clients that are trying to do like a very code-free sort of approach. There's not many people who are in the space that are really creating solutions using code for specific clients. And being able to do that and do it well and be able to make sure that it's really robust with all the tools and the, the um, approaches that Python, modern Python programming can give you is really differentiating. And I've gotten a lot of business that way and vice versa, the ability to take what I'm learning from my clients and that real world hands on practical experience of what they really need and how they're approaching problems is something that I try to bring into the classroom a lot and share those experiences with my students. So it becomes more practical or more hands-on for them. Uh, you just made me have, the, uh, you, you do this all the time, but I just had this huge aha moment. It makes so sense. So you coming from a, an outside world, you get your solutions and your drive from doing things from the outside world, you know, fixing problems, um, solving problems with code, where I get my, my desire to solve the problems from the students. So... Right. It's wow, you know, here's our, here's her, I don't know, it was a mind blowing thing, but like, that's who drove me into learning so much. It wasn't, um, unfortunately wasn't an intrinsic, it was definitely an extrinsic push. I mean, I had that first intrinsic motivation of, yeah, I'm going to learn to code, but what's kept me going is this drive of the kids have answers and I want to be able to guide them into ways of finding the answers, you know, to their questions. So right. I, I want to help them be those solution finders in the world to come. And, and that's what keeps me, I don't know, that's why we teach. Well, <laughs> I, and I find the same, I find it the same way. I mean, just because I'm doing this outside work doesn't mean I'm immune to 
seeing a student come up with a really cool creative solution that I never would have considered, right? That sort of um, fresh, unfiltered, untrained sort of search and, and application for solutions is fascinating. It's mm -hmm. like one of the most fulfilling things about teaching is that you get exposed as an adult to raw, untrained ideas from students. They don't know that things aren't possible or that you can't do this. And they come up with these really creative solutions, especially when they're constrained by their own lack of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So we, like, I think the, those good ideas and those inspiration can come from anywhere. And the more sources that you can cultivate for yourself, the better off you're going to be. Yeah. So Eric, yes, I, I think one day, maybe I would like to develop my database that would actually help see... Um, a student for who they are based, you know, not just on their grades or, but more on demographics and skill levels and understanding. Yes, that would be an awesome job. Yeah. But and like behaviors too, right? Yeah, so behaviors. what do they actually do and, and behave instead of what they say or how they respond? I mean, like, I think you'd have a, a really fascinating, fun time creating that database. It, it's a work in product. I, I've got a couple of just to know if anybody's been listening over the three years, <laughs> I do have something actually started. It's very poorly <laughs> written, but it's something. So, well, very poorly written and <laughs> in existence is better than an idea that hasn't even made it to the screen yet. Yeah. So now that I know scripts and all that other stuff and practicing my theory, we'll see how it goes. Hmm. Okay. Well, there, you know, there's an interesting tie in here. Um, so, this is something that was kind of cool. We got, uh, we, we're very flattered to find out that um, S.A. Olivia, who's a writer in Virginia, has SM. been going. S.M. Sorry, S.M. Olivia has been going through the old TV show Computer Chronicles. And I don't know if, if anybody else remembers this, but it was a show that ran from, I think, like about 1982 or 83 until 2002. So it had nearly a 20 year run. And it's all or it looks like a lot of the episodes are available on the Internet Archive. And so. Um, our, our friend, Mr. Olivia, has been going through and reviewing these old episodes. And so he um, cited us as the inspiration for going back to an episode from 1984, all about <laughs> all about the role of computers in education. And it was really fascinating because guess what they were using in 1984? <laughs> logo. Logo. <laughs> logo. Which is, you know, a direct um, ancestor of the turtle module in Python. And mm -hmm. it's... Um, really fascinating to see how they were talking about the way computers can be used in education and the way the role that they saw playing inside the classroom. And it's kind of interesting to see, at least to me, the way that that changed. So in 1984, I was four, you know, so I was probably oh, a little on. bit younger than some of the kids that were going in there. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. You were like a third grader. Sorry. <laughs> so much older. Um, and but, back then that's a huge difference. <laughs> I know, but it, like the, the point is like 84, we were the kids that they were talking about. We were the ones that were the direct recipients of computers in the classroom and computers in education. Mm -hmm. And so it's really fascinating to see what the adults at the time were saying about how the, how computers could be used. And there's a quote from um, one of the guests on the show that I thought was really interesting. And I, I wanted to see if, you know, 30 years later, this has come true. Um, 30 years later, 35 years later, this has come true. Um, the quote was, teachers in secondary schools will be counselors and troubleshooters. 
not just counselors about future careers or emotional problems, but cognitive counselors able to help when a student has not found the right mix or the right approach to instruction in the wealth of technological offerings. The demands on the teachers will be greater than they are now. They will need to be much more professional and more deeply trained, and they should be paid much better than they are now. And I said, I think for the most part that's come true, except for maybe the pay part. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and you brought up an interesting addition to this also, which is that you know the role of teachers is also to facilitate the opportunities mm -hmm. for learning, right? To create yeah. the environment. Yeah, that kind of and it and it goes back to this book about a thousand brains and the way that our brain is really works. So we have in our classrooms, we use, because we both fully believe that these tutorials, these drill-in practices, they are phenomenal. And they are 100% effective in using in the classroom. So 100% agree with uh, SUPS um, idea of here, we're going to use this computer model and the kids can go self-paced. We use PyBytes, we use um, tutorials, we use our choice boards. They go at their own pace. They can extend. They can, um, you know, go at a lower level. Hundred percent agree. But the thing that they they don't get, and again, going back to Hawkins, is that computer program can only do that activity. It doesn't know if it's a boy. Doesn't know if it's a girl. Doesn't know if it's struggling in reading. Doesn't know if you know it's a second language learner. It only can provide that tutorial. And it can identify why that child is not understanding or why they don't understand functions. And it, it can give them a hyperlink to learn more, but maybe that other tutorial, that other link is not really going to help them to solve the problem. Maybe they need to write it out. Maybe they need to draw it out. Maybe they need to seek guidance from somebody or ask a friend. And that's what's missing. And I 100% feel you know, in 2084, unless we produce these real AGIs, these, these, um, these real um, general intelligent computers, that, that they're not going to replace a teacher. But, you know, we might be able to handle more kids. We might be able to facilitate more when we put them on these um, machine learning or automated or um, uh, artificial intelligence tutorials, we might be able to take in more students, or we might be able to do it all fully from, from uh, MOOCs or online, but I don't think it'll ever replace that mentor that can, can, you know, help with these other skills. Well, it might so. be hard to hard to see from where we're sitting right now, just the same way it as it was hard to see in 1984, mm -hmm. where, you know, the world would be 35 mm -hmm. years later. I mean, they, they talk about the terminal you know, mm -hmm. being this this tutor, this um, personal tutor, and the ability for students to access information and consume it at their own pace, the ability to drill and skill, um, but they didn't see the internet coming, right? Yeah. They didn't see the the massive wealth of knowledge. I mean, I think it would have blown them away to think about is not just the terminal, and it's not just the diskette that the the teacher can load up or the. I remember having the cabinet with all these five and a quarter inch floppies that you could go and, and pull out and think about all the different games that were in that one cabinet. And then we've multiplied it times a trillion mm -hmm. with the internet and everything is at their fingertips. The, the need for curation by the educator, by the teacher in charge yeah. is probably even more valuable.
right? Yeah. It's, it's not so much to be able to say, here's all the things we can learn. It's here's all the things that we probably should learn, the, the directions that we should go generally, mm-hmm. and then providing those pathways for exploration for them to be able to learn more and to explore and to be creative and to find their pathway and to have that guidance. And I think that's where the, the unforeseeable part of this really sits is, will we be able to get to a point where the AI-driven tutoring, the machine-driven learning is adaptable enough to be able to account for all of those different learning differences that every student has. Like every person has learning differences in the way that they learn, the things that they learn. And if we do it right, we have this ability to you know, create more equity and equitable access to information. And if, if we can find ways to do that without biasing the machine learning part of it, that means that any student globally could potentially have equal opportunity to education and resources, but they may not have equal access to the guides, the curators, Mm -hmm. the people who are there to help them find their path and find their passion um, for learning or, or even just their, their ability to solve the need that they have. Absolutely. And, And don't forget that like the hardest part of learning is not this, um, accepting of knowledge or gathering of knowledge. It's actually that ability to, you know, take that fact and apply it. Right. So whatever computer program is out there, yeah, um, we can, okay, well, um, and I don't want to call out JetBrains, but in the quizzes that I have for JetBrains and with the AI quizzes, it is repetition of fact. But put me in AWS and tell me to go do a SageMaker learning thing. And I'm like, ah, you know, help me. I don't know what to do. Or go go um, strip out some tags from HTML. I don't know what to do yet. But now I have the knowledge. When you get that program that can help the student go from that knowledge, any student, and then extrapolate that information. I don't know. It'll. It's it's. It's that environment that we provide, that a teacher provides, that learning opportunity, whether it's, it's um, open, like sometimes we do open projects and we just say, here, make this project, go learn, make a project, or sometimes it's a guided, guided yeah. project. Yeah. So we create that environment to, to ensure that the knowledge is taken further, not right. just the facts. So. I loved his, I loved his article and I was, I was so, um, honored that at the very bottom, he even referenced our, our episode about turtle. And we all know how much I love turtle. And I spend three, four weeks. I try to cut it at four weeks with the sixth graders with turtles. So I, I, I thank you. Thank you. We thank you. Yeah, it was, it was really great. And I, that is the module that I probably go back to over and over again for learning and for thinking about how to do, um, wild and crazy ideas and, <laughs> and, and everything from let me make really cool kaleidoscope style um, drawings or um, sketches to making pictures and, and artwork to that simulation that was in, I think, Lee Vaughn's book about, mm-hmm. um, you know, Python projects um, where you can plot the Apollo 8 uh, moon return mission using Turtle and, and it, using physics. It's really cool. All the different things that you can do. And the only real real limit is your imagination, your creativity, and your ability to solve problems. That, that triggered my question to you. So it, if you had a situation 
where a student was just learning Python and we go, I go through a Grok learning, we go, or not Python, just turtle. <clears throat> Sorry. And we Grok learning. They know the basics. They know how to forward. They know how to do for loops. They can write functions. We can make these great pictures. At what point of that tutorial learning, could they make that, that orbit around the moon that we did in Lee Vaughn's project? That's a huge jump. And could they have gotten that way with a full understanding by just following tutorials? Well, I, I think the, the, the value comes in the challenge. So if you can mm -hmm. challenge the student to say, okay, so you've learned these things and you found these areas, how could you do this next step? Or what's the next step that you could take? How can you get a little bit further? So for example, you know, how could you plot a parabolic arc, right? Mm -hmm. To do a parabolic arc of throwing a, a Frisbee or a baseball or something up into the air, you're actually not that much further away from orbital mechanics, right? <laughs> I know it seems strange. <laughs> hey, sixth grader, go do orbital mechanics and make Mr. Pi Mr. Tiber proud. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the thing is, it's it's really not that far <clears throat> for a student. If they can find the path, they can mm. find the steps from one to the next to the next. We're just trying to create these stepping stones for them. Yeah, but we create them, right? So we create them. You imagine having to do again this program, this online program. And this is why in 2084, I'm not sure it's going to happen or whatever date it was, because the computer program has to know what the likes are, what their interests are. And yeah, they could take a little generic, and but it's going to be prepackaged unless it's a real true, you know, artificial intelligence that has a general intelligence and not just a you know, specific role. It'll be interesting. I, I'm really eager. I wish I was going to be alive in 2084. I'm not sure. That's a long ways away. <laughs> yeah, drink your uh, smoothies now. <laughs> Keep taking my vitamins and collagen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the role of teachers will change by 2084, just like they've mm -hmm. changed over the past 35 years. We're going to see changes. It's, it's inevitable that the role of teachers will change. The question is which direction will it take? Um, mm -hmm. I, I, my hope is that we can create better and better learning environments for students where it's more mm -hmm. effective, it's more interesting, it's more, they're more capable. Um, unfortunately, I think the big question is with equity and, and how evenly distributed those opportunities yeah. will be. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's, that's the uh, quote, I think it's like Kurzweil maybe is, said this, is that the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed, right? Mm -hmm. um, some people are living in the future, some people are not. Yeah. And yeah. if we, if we focus on it, we can help bring down that inequity, at least in the education area, through some of these mechanisms. That reminds me, need to share out that um, the video with, uh, let me get that, I think I posted it for you, with, from Mac Rumors um, with Malala and Apple. They partnered, partnered with Malala Fund to help support girls' education and helping organizations assist with technology. It's a pretty good um, episode, I, I looked, I went through it. I kind of skipped cause I've, I've watched Malala a couple of times and we've, there's a lot of stuff going around with that. And I love what she's been doing for girls. I kind of skipped to her, her thing about learning how to code. She talks about going into this universal language and it was a beautiful thing. So I haven't watched the whole episode, but it's, uh, something to start watching if you want to see. it came out June. Yeah, I think it's uh, um, it raises a lot of really interesting questions and a lot of ethical 
questions about what's the right approach for building equity in education. And I don't think the, I don't think I have the full answer. I don't have the full picture yeah. uh, to even start with the answer, but it, it always comes back to me as we know that there are groups of people. We know that there are individual people mm -hmm. that are not getting the same education and the same opportunities for education as everyone else through a variety of, of reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's because they don't go to the right school, they don't live in the right school district, they don't live in the right country, they're not the right age, they're not the right color, they're not the right gender, they're not the right, um, you know, they don't have the right learning capabilities as other students. And so people think it's too hard to teach them or whatever those reasons are. We, we know that there are people that don't have that same access and they don't have that same opportunity. And what I find interesting is when we talk about giving those people mm -hmm. more opportunities to focus on them, to say, let's emphasize opportunities for people who are disadvantaged or do not have the same opportunities. We get a lot of people who say, but it should be the same for everybody, right? It should be, well, if you're going to focus on education for African-American girls and encoding, then you should make it education for everybody encoding. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of like saying like, well, this house is on fire in the neighborhood, but we're going to spray water on everything mm -hmm. because everybody has should have equal access to water, right? Like we need to go where there are problems. We should go to where there are problems that need to be solved. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that we should ignore other groups of students who have more opportunities and who have more access. We continue to work with every student to the best of our ability. But I think we need to go to where there are problems and create solutions that are effective and smart and make sense. And it's yeah. not as simple as just throwing money at it. Mm -mm. Right? Mm -mm. And and. And on that, I think, I mean, we're one, I don't know how we got in this topic, but <laughs> I'm trying to come back, but we're, we are just that one person, right? We, we, as two educators see a disproportionate problem, you know, disproportionate between the girls that attend um, our robotics class. And so we try to aggregate and try to get more girls into code at our school. I saw the same issue in Peru when the underprivileged girls weren't getting a, as good as an education as the underprivileged boys. And it, it's not necessarily anyone's fault, but it was a problem that I saw and I've in my own world have been trying to advocate for mm -hmm. and in, in another person's world, it may be another um, group of people that they want to advocate for, you know? So I think we're one person and we, we have to choose our, our battles at that moment. So, yeah. And I, I, I think, you know, to be very perfectly clear and, and honest with ourselves, we teach at a very high end private school yeah. with a lot of resources. We're yeah. on the every opportunity side of the scale for our students. Yeah. We try to create as many opportunities as we can, and we have a lot of wonderful resources to do that, for which we are very grateful, mm -hmm. right? But one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast is to be able to share that privilege with as many people as we can and to share mm -hmm. our learning and what we've come up with to be able to do that. That's our purpose. Yeah. It, we are like I think it would be unfair to say that we are trying to change the world or that we are out there trying to, you know, really focus on those, those students. Like we have to eat also. Right. 
And so we work. <laughs> You're talking work. about I lose weight that way if we don't eat. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but we work, we work where we have the opportunity to yeah. make a difference. And thankfully, yeah. our school also recognizes that not every student has the opportunities that yeah. that our students at our school do. And so they've been incredibly supportive of this podcast, of us sharing as much as we can, of, you know, working with people who are working across the globe to try to solve some of these problems and to be able to share our privilege as much as possible. It's not perfect, right? But we're working on it one day at a time to try to solve the problem. And I think we can do, we can always do more and we can mm -hmm. always keep working on it. There's still only 24 hours in the day and, and neither of us are sleeping as probably as much <laughs> as we should anyways, but we'll keep working at it. And if everyone keeps working at it a little bit, you know, think about the differences that we can make for students. Yeah. I want to get to Ian Fulton's uh, question. So sorry, not to change so drastically, oh, yeah, but go, I'm, go, uh, go. We're, we talked, we haven't seen each other in a while, so we keep yeah. talking. Sorry. Um, saw your posts for asking questions. I'd be interested to know if the students have experience with scratch or block based programming languages before starting out with Python. Do you think this matters or makes the transition easier? Just your ideas on block, block programming languages versus using Python as you do with the level you teach. I love the show. Thanks, Ian. PSC <laughs> teaches in New Zealand. I, you know, I had to add that in, he, you know, <laughs> but he teaches in New Zealand. He's been a great follower of our show. And yes, yes, we do coding from PK um, up. My, my, uh, um, he's seven now, but he started with those little Ozo bots, they do codables. I know last year because of COVID, um, our school adopted Tinker at the lower levels. We, we stopped using Tinker at the middle school levels just because it wasn't fitting our needs. I like Tinker. I think it's really good for the lower levels. I love the block. I love the characters. I love the color and the artistic. So they do a lot of that activity. Scratch was a huge component of our curriculum. Um, couple years ago this year it's been difficult i know we use um wonderworks wonder wonder, wonder workshop wonder yeah wonder workshop. workshop sorry in in the lower levels and i they are also using the microbits they just started that with fifth grade and the block programming with microbits so our students get and and i say this we do a, they do a lot in the lower levels but it's 30 minutes I don't know, every other or every day, depending on the grade level. And it's not a, it's not a full-time curriculum, but they do get a great introduction and they use iPads and they have a lot of technology in their hands at an early age. So yes, yes. And yes. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. I mean, you know, I had never really done a lot of block-based coding before I started teaching because I, I think I missed that um, opportunity when I was growing up and as I was learning. So all of my coding has really been text-based, although I have worked with surprisingly powerful enterprise-grade integration tools that are drag and drop, you know, kind of graph diagrams, and you can you can pull things together that way. Um, but I think the interesting thing for me, what I've seen with students in block-based coding that you just can't really get with text-based coding, no matter how good it is, um, is that library of available commands. So for students, one of the hardest things to do is look at a blank screen and figure out what to type first, mm -hmm. right? If you're in Python, like, what do I do? Do I need to import stuff? Do I need to write stuff? Should I write pseudocode? That first step of how do I create a program can be very challenging for them. 
but with blocks, you have that little drawer of here's all the available blocks that I can play with and I can assemble and you can see the connections between them. And, and it provides this creativity of how do I connect these together in interesting ways? And you can see students like naturally kind of get that, especially because Legos have become so pervasive mm -hmm. in, in so many students' homes. They're used to this idea of connecting things together and building pieces and then connecting it you know, like a, a assembled part of, of their Lego blocks to another assembled part and creating something bigger. And so this idea of the building block mentality works very well for students, especially at the lower levels. But mm -hmm. even as they get older, sometimes being able to go back to block-based coding is really helpful for them to be able to prototype an idea, to see if something works a, a certain way, to just explore and play and have fun too. So I feel like the block-based codes help build that enthusiasm and interest mm -hmm. in coding. It helps build a lot of the thought processes around concepts like loops and variables and functions that you can reuse. Um, and it does make it easier for us to go into text-based coding that way. The only possible drawback is that sometimes students get so comfortable in a block-based coding mm -hmm. environment that they feel extra paralyzed and text-based because they just want to go back to um, block base where they know they can do the same thing and do it faster. Like they have that like frustration of like, well, why won't this just work um, in text? Because I know exactly how I would do it in block based. Until they can't. And that, that was something that I encountered, you know, before we started teaching Python, I was teaching, I had, I can't believe the seventh grade Legos. I was teaching you know what I came from Peru. I did a uh, did a lot of robotics with um, uh, Lego Mindstorms, and when we went to the Carnegie Mellon Institute, I, I was surprised of how much I how little I knew of the drag and drop of of the Lego interface because I did what I knew and I solved the problem with the blocks that were. Um, comfortable for me to use. And I never extended my knowledge. And that's part fault of mine, but I didn't feel the need because I could solve the same problem with, you know, generic blocks. So most kids are not those kids that are creating those amazing games on the scratch um, platform where our kids are going to play games. <laughs> they're the, they're consuming it. They can make the little cat meow and go through a for loop and go to its coordinates, but they're not really, and I say not, they aren't in general, kids are not creating these phenomenal games in comparison. There are kids creating it, but in the comparison of the people using the, the block based environment, not everybody's doing it. So it kind of hinders you, um, I think, a little bit. Whereas in Python, if you only stick to the basics, you're only printing hello, you know, hello world. You really need to push those boundaries and seek out um, other ways of doing things. And then by seeking out other ways, you know, I guess you could do that in block, but I don't, I don't know. I, I'm brown. Yeah, I mean, sorry. it's... <laughs> But again, that comes back to who's cultivating the learning, right? Who's Absolutely. curating that? Who's challenging them? Um, you know, because I think if we challenge students in block-based coding, they can continue to grow and expand their knowledge and their capabilities in block-based coding the same way they can in text. Yeah. Personally, I like the ability in, in text to concisely express an idea in a way that might be harder in, in code, but that's the, sort of the same way, or in, in block-based code. 
but that's sort of the same way that sometimes it's better to write something out and so draw a picture and sometimes it's mm -hmm. better to draw a picture than to write things out. Yeah. So different mediums for different needs. I have to admit though, I was a cargo bot, um, app user with the uh, codables I love, but I just bit the bullet and, uh, bought my son the code war monthly 999 nice. python because he's like okay i'm done and i'm like what do you mean you're done how could you have done all the free stuff so he's doing the python one and he's in, going to be entering fifth grade so i don't know i my try to get him to do <laughs> my daughter and i've been doing code combat together oh code combat really yeah, that's what fun. yeah that's what yeah. i meant code combat yeah have you so bought the? Have you bought it? No, <laughs> no we haven't quite hit that point. She was really into it for like about a week and then lost interest. And I'm getting her back in. And, you know, like I, I don't want to push her too hard. Like she's yeah. going into third grade. So this is more <laughs> I think it's more about us spending time together than it is about her really learning how to code seriously. And I just love spending time with her trying to figure this stuff out. And it's fun. Yeah. So as long as it stays fun, we'll keep doing it. Yeah. But I bet you if you gave her codables and let her do right, left, right, left. She would probably spend hours. So that is a one bonus of having those blocks. Nice. So. Nice. <laughs> okay. Well, I have some stuff. Um, like I think I have some new things that I'm um, experimenting with, new products, new things that have been announced uh, over the summer that I wanted to quickly mm. run through. Kelly, if you have stuff that you've discovered or found that you want to share with the audience, I think it's kind of a good time to, to catch up. Um, I did see a quote that I think is very apt for teachers. It says anybody who thinks uh, teachers aren't working in the summer in the summer are the same people that think that football players only work on Sundays, right? <laughs> <laughs> we we're working during the summer in a different way. We're growing, we're learning, we're planning, we're re recovering, we're regrouping um, the same way that athletes take the time during the off season to train, to recover, to refocus, to be ready for the upcoming season we're looking ahead to the fall and what we're going to bring in. So there's some some cool stuff that I've been uh, checking out. Uh, the first one is I got invited to the beta of the uh, Adafruit Whippersnapper. So um, Whippersnapper is kind of cool. I got this, um, I'm gonna put it on the, the stream here. I have this Adafruit Funhouse, there we go. Adafruit Funhouse, it's a board that's designed for IoT and home automation. This is like my, this is my jam, right? It's Wi-Fi. <laughs> It's got connectors for sensors, but it also has temperature, pressure, barometer. It has analog inputs, capacitive touch sensors, buttons, lights, the whole thing. But what's really cool about it is they came up with a uh, an image that you can flash onto this that will let you drag and drop or configure um, sensors and buttons and everything on the Adafruit IO platform. So if I press the button on the front, on the website, it detects that I press the button and I can trigger different things to happen, but it all happens without code. So it's a, a way to get students to explore and prototype quickly, and then maybe turn that into a CircuitPython program. Um, so that is in beta right now. I believe it's still in private beta, but hopefully it'll uh, open up into a public beta soon and you'll be able to check it out. And that comes with, uh, with Adafruit IO. Um, so that one is, is very cool. Um, I also have been working with, I have a new Adafruit board here. I think it's, uh, I may not have it right in front of me, but it is an Adafruit feather board. So the feather form factor like this. Um, and it's called the Sense. It's the Feather Sense, and it comes with Bluetooth built into it. 
and it has a bunch of really cool sensors, uh, probably more than I, I even thought were possible to cram onto a board. It's got an accelerometer, it's got pressure sensors, temperature sensors, light sensors, like all of these different sensors all on one board that you can use with Bluetooth. So it's a very, very interesting and cool way of prototyping stuff, probably like a step up from the Circuit Playground um, Express in terms of being able to prototype and use it for different um, different projects. So I'm gonna be playing around with that quite a bit over the uh, over the coming weeks. Uh, Kelly, do you have anything that you've uh, discovered this summer? Uh, well, no, yes and no. I um, did purchase the AWS, I don't know if I copied it on the email, but the AWS keyboard. Oh, it nice. is, we own the Deep Racer, it's expensive. We own, um, and I did get another, AI image recognition so I can like practice deep, deep lens. That's also expensive, but the keyboard and it has mixed reviews. I can drop the, the link in there. It's the deep composer. It, it's got mixed reviews, but I think it's because, you know, maybe these are, are real time developers who are at a limit, right? It's not, I'm not going to be playing a music and it's going to be a full mashed up artificial intelligence song composed, but I really think it would be good for our middle school students. I think the ability to play um, Mary had a little lamb or whatever little musical thing that they're learning on the keyboard. And then it generates some background sounds. Um, the video is really cool. Has the drum and other um, instruments playing along with it. It's, it's kind of neat. So I think it's going to be one of those kitschy kind of things to introduce. Here's your deep racer. Here's your, le your, your lenses, but here's your keyboard, you know, for these yeah. musically inclined and artistic students that we have at our school, I think it's a great way to pull them in. So yeah, I, there was a, like we had a student um, earlier this year that was really into the music part of yeah. this and was using it to create their own um, like sheet music via code. And I was thinking like, wouldn't it be great to have something like this where not only could you use it to, you know, play music on the keyboard and turn that into notes on a page, but also to have an AI composed you know, accompaniment to it or yeah. orchestral um, arrangement based on what you're just noodling around with on the keyboard. I think that'd be really fascinating. And I'd love to be able to put that together. Yeah. Um, AWS will probably get tired of me, you know, making a whole bunch of Gmail so I can have my 12 months of free. <laughs> I'm sure I'm like, what other email can I make and get, you know, certain amounts, but that was really cool. And then I just had this one cool thing and it's old. Um, it's called a day in the life of an American. And you probably should have shared this, but it's so cool. It's me being that data person. It's got music. So just be careful when you click on it. Um, it shows how through the time, the people, people moving from sleeping to to work, to on the phone. And this was, I think, two years ago, 2019. I'm not sure. But it, I saw it on LinkedIn. And I've been following a lot of AI people on my LinkedIn. And the stuff that they're sharing with the data um, is it, just cool. And it, it I could stare at it all day. And I want to create that stuff. That would be a cool part of my dashboard about students. Where do they move? <laughs> So I, I collect these wish lists of ideas. So I just add that. Well, the other the other new thing that I wanted to share that 
is not really that new, but I, I thought it was really interesting is um, as part of this fast API project I'm working on, one of the things I'm doing is looking at government data sources for information and I'm looking at state level government. So within the 50 states of the US, what data is available? And it's a whole range, right? Sometimes there's no data available. Sometimes there's, here's a CSV file. I've seen, here's a PDF of our data, which is like, thanks, that's really not helpful, but okay. Um, you know, I'll probably have to like OCR it or strip the data out. <laughs> but probably the coolest thing I've seen, and this is, um, this is a really great source for examples and data sets that you can use with your students and it's public domain information. The state of Washington has a data portal called data.wa.gov, and it is really cool. It's all based on this open library, um, or, a lot, or a lot of their data is based on open uh, this open library that has a Python wrapper around it. So you can very quickly query the their data sets and get um, just different slices of data, um, like different ways to visualize it. Um, so for example, they have everything from find a health provider, right? So the Department of Health has providers for credential, you know, prov uh, provider credentials. So, you know, does your doctor have a medical license? Like you can query that. Um, it has information about like cleanup sites of different um, natural resource areas. So they look at Elliott Bay or the Kenmore waterfront. They have a whole set in here about lobbyist compensation and expenses by source. So every lobbyist in the state of Washington has to register their information about like where they're getting contributions from, what their expenses look like, how they're spending their lobbyist budget. And you could do a lot of things with government with this. They have um, a data set for vehicle battery registration. <laughs> like, you know, and some of these are newer, some of them are older, like the, the vehicle battery one was updated in 2016, but these data sets are all publicly available. So if wow. you can go look at this, you can pull data and use it maybe for, your students, if you live in the state of Washington, maybe there's a really interesting data set that your students can work with that's personally relevant to them. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that um, to go look at your government websites, state government, federal government, regardless of country that you live in, your national government, your regional government may have a lot of really cool open data sets mm -hmm. that you're not even aware of that you could use as a resource for teaching. And they're completely public domain information. It's a matter of public record. So why not use it to teach students about the world that they live in or the region that they live in? Absolutely. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Oh, you were trying to get me to go on a lot of data before. It overwhelms me. Yeah. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> like, it, it can be, but I think this is also teaching us, or teaching our students about the scale of the world that Absolutely. they're inheriting, right? We have so much data available to us and being able to handle that, draw insights from it, visualize it, slice it, dice it, like whatever that is, is a really valuable skill to be able to have. I'm hoping to be more um, a stronger aptitude in uh, in parsing information from the web. So that's my goal. I have four more weeks and it's stressing me out that I'm not going to finish both of these courses in four weeks. Um, throwing two books, a couple books out there. I don't know if anyone has heard of um, The Engine Nerds by Jarrett Lerner. He's, I don't know if he's fairly new author, but I have my youngest son reading those books. We're reading them together. Read aloud. We often do that. Um, love the books. My only, my only sad thing, and this is, <laughs> this kind of goes back to our conversation, which we won't start again. He, it's all boys. 
And the boys don't like the little girl and they don't think she's smart enough to be an engineer because she's a girl. And I have to read that with my son and say, you know, that's just because they're little boys that don't understand that girls are smart too. And in the third book, they do take Michaela in with her, but she's really into UFOs. And these guys are battling these bots that one of the kids made and the bot has the ability to learn. And, um, it's cute book. We're on uh, volume two and he's coming out with a whole series called Giger. The robot goes to school. It, it's a fun book. It's one of those things that he's pooping out huge cubes of food and it's about to kill people. Not really, but it, it messes up his room and stuff. So they battle these bots before the UFO aliens come, but Michaela's going to come in and save the day. I feel I, I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> I hope so. I, I hope so. Um, if you're looking for a book, though, that really is well done around um, engineering and for girls, it's something that's relatable. Um, Shonda McCloskey is a great author. She wrote a book. Uh, she's written several books, um, but her one of her books is called Doll E 1.0. And it's about a, a girl who hacks her own doll to make <laughs> it more lifelike and interesting to her. And she takes this engineering approach to it. Um, and it's really cute. The illustrations are amazing nice. um, it, and it feels really genuine, right? It yeah. doesn't feel like, oh, you know, here's, here's a girl doing engineering because we like for some inauthentic reason, she's, she sees something that she can make better and she can take apart and fix and, and she's really into it. And I love reading that book and, and I've read it, read it with my daughter a number of times. So if you need something like that, I don't uh, have a daughter, so I have to read these boys books and I try to read a lot of girl books, but you know, <laughs> well, there's a companion book to Dolly 1.0, which is called okay. T-Bone the drone. And it's perfect. About a, a boy with his drone and spoiler alert. Um, Charlotte, the girl from uh, Dolly 1.0, makes a special surprise appearance in T-Bone the Drone. So there's a little bit of a connection oh, between them. Good, 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 good. And I won't, I won't bore anybody, but you know, if anybody wants to learn how to build an outdoor kitchen, that was another project I did during my time of diffuse learning. So um, you'll be happy to know, Mr. Tiber, that the concrete has been completely poured. We did, I don't know, like nine bags of concrete. The stucco is on. My sons know how, what it takes to do construction and the ability that if you mess up with, you know, with anything that you can always fix it. So skim coat the, you know, the concrete and, uh, picking out paint. I am outsourcing the painting because I am not a painter. <laughs> well. And if anyone's curious, always wear gloves when you're pouring concrete because your hand absorbs the chemicals in the concrete. Oh. Just a fun fact. I had yeah, funky hands for a week. <laughs> well, my my painting project is um, I the my kids and I got new um, controllers for our Nintendo so we can play Mario Kart better <laughs> together. And I got the perfect controller for my daughter from a functional perspective. It's called a Nano controller, Nano Pro, and it's basically all the same buttons that you get on a Nintendo Switch Pro controller, but smaller, so it fits really well in her hands. However it only comes in like black and gray. <laughs> so it's really <laughs> boring. And, and so she got it and she's like, it was unhappy because it was gray and it has like little splashes of color here and there, but nothing really interesting or exciting. Um, and so what we're doing right now is we took the shell apart. We took out all the plastic pieces, all the electronics, 
and we are repainting it. So we're in, we've primed it, we're sanding it. We have design ideas. We have a little stencil. We're going to stencil it. So she's getting to personalize her controller and I'm helping her do it because I want to make sure it comes out really nice for her. You need a patent that, you know. <laughs> oh, no, it's been done a million times before. But, oh, okay. <laughs> but, but it's only been done once for her. Like, and I think oh, yeah. that's the really that's awesome. cool thing is that she she woke me up this morning before I took her to camp. And all, she's like, can we sand it now so that later we can paint it? She's, you know, really excited about the project and wants to see it through. So we are going slow and methodically through the process and making sure that everything dries and cures and all that stuff that it needs to. I love that. I love that. Hands-on stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. Man, we can hands talk on, forever. Hands-on <laughs> hands stuff so we can play video games and veg out later. <laughs> oh, it just shows you that we can't go a couple of weeks without talking. Yep. Yeah, well, we'll do this again. Um, we have a few more um, guests that we're working on for the remainder of the summer. Um, we'd like to keep the uh, the live stream process going. Uh, looks like we've had at least one viewer the whole time. So thank you to whoever that is <laughs> um, who stayed with us the whole time. But but to be honest, um, we're going to keep doing the live stream because it's a really easy way for us to see each other and to be able to share with, with all of you. Um, I think that's pretty much it for now. We better stop ourselves anyways, right? We're on, we're on, uh, with John Micton on July 23rd, we'll send out the information for that. I'm really excited to be on his podcast. He came on our podcast last episode and I, I've had to look up the date. It was 2012 when I took the course with him. So he was right. He's a yeah, great guy. So, so I'm looking forward to that. So we'll have that posted on our, our website and on our social media. So if you'd like to um, to check that out, we'll post that as soon as it's available. I think they live stream also, but mm -hmm. I could be wrong on that. I will um, keep that going. Um, but I think that should do it for this week. So for, te uh, for Teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly signing off. Mm -hmm.